From South Carolina Public Radio, this is Walter Edgar's Journal. I'm Walter Edgar, and this is the podcast about South Carolina culture and history with a nod to all things Southern. I'll be joined today by my producer and co-host, Alfred Turner. And this time, our guest is author and film critic, Ben Beard. Ben was on our radio show a few months back, and we had so much fun talking with him, we asked him to join us again. In his latest book, The South Never Plays Itself, a film buff's journey through the South on screen, Ben explores the history of the Deep South on screen, beginning with silent cinema and ending in the streaming era, attempting to answer the haunting question, what do movies know about the South that we don't? Ben, welcome back to Walter Edgar's Journal, and we're delighted to have you with us to talk about your book, The South Never Plays Itself a film buff's journey through the South on screen. Second subtitle, From Birth of a Nation to Green Book. So, man, you really covered everything. I mean, you, you're you a publisher's dream. You've got two subtitles to your book, <laughs> two colons. <laughs> uh, yeah, I. Um, it's funny that you bring that up because we debated for weeks and weeks the subtitle and the second subtitle i i wanted just to show that the book had a scale and sort of scope to it right but the uh i won't i don't even i don't want to tell you all the subtitles that i threw out there but we had a whole bunch of them yeah there was some fighting there was some arguing over it (laughs) well Um, look been there done that publishers want something that's gonna gonna grab a potential purchaser when I did a little book on the revolution, I had this great subtitle quoting Francis Marion and, and all of that. They didn't want to do that. And my daughter, who at that time was in PR out in Los Angeles, she said, keep it simple for the Yankees, daddy. <laughs> <laughs> so it became partisans in red coats. And uh, forget oh, it. Oh, that's wonderful. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about you. Film buff, I think you're more than just a buff. Uh, that was my, yeah, that was part of my beef with it because uh, I was a reviewer and uh, a, a small critic, but a critic. And I had written about movies for a long time. Uh, I started reviewing films in the early 2000s and I was a worked as an editor and a reviewer for a film website that's now defunct. I had interviewed a lot of directors and stuff. And I was partially an autodidact, but on film, but I mean, I'd read tons of film books and film biographies and histories. And I had written on my own, a couple of other books that I'm still kind of cooking, you know, it's intriguing the way you divided up the films on the South. I want to start with your last chapter. You said, if I had to distill the book into a handful of films, well, here they be the Southerner. Cabin in the Sky, Intruder in the Dust, Cat in a Hot Tin Roof, God's Little Acre, Nothing But a Man, Nashville, Deliverance, Magic Mike, Dogville, Mystery Train, School Days, Mississippi Grind, Monsters Ball, Spring Breakers, 99 Homes, Moonlight, 12 Years a Slave, and Free State of Jones. So that's quite a list. 
most of the films I was familiar with and have seen, but why would something like Monster's Ball be on your list of films depicting the South? You've given away the ending, Walter, so thank you. No, I'm kidding. Okay, Monster's Ball is... um, it's really well made for one. And it tells a story about uh, security guards in a prison, three generations of security guards who are white and they've passed down racism and race hatred to each other. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton, Peter Boyle and Heath Ledger. And then you have Halle Berry who is a black woman who lives in town and her husband is one of the guys in the prison who has been executed And the film, it's wonderfully made. It's very compelling. It's very grim, but it's also really well paced. But it shows kind of how racism works. No one wakes up one morning and says, um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to hate this group today. I'm just going to hate this group today. They marinate in it. They um, soak in it. And I've even seen I know people not this extreme, but I, I grew up with some people who that's kind you could see it happening. And so I thought the film was uh, emblematic. I was trying to pick good films that also represented aspects of the South that um, had popped out to me in my, you know, study and in my life. And so Monsters Ball was definitely one of those. It's also, it's, it's a very compelling movie. Well, any number of these I have used in class, Cabin in the Sky, which a lot of folks might not know about, but certainly Intruder in the Dust, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, God's Little Taker. Uh, in South Carolina, how could we not use Deliverance? Thank you, James Dickey. A film that was sort of filmed in South Carolina, up in the upstate. And by the way, there have been, been a number of interesting films set here, and not only set in South Carolina, but actually filmed here. Beaufort down on the coast seems to attract more even than uh, than Charleston. I made a list, Walter. Oh, you cool. made a list? For cool, this, cool. For this very reason. And one of the films filmed there, and it's not in the, it was in a draft of the book, but it got cut for a lot of reasons, but The Big Chill, yeah. which is one of those generational defining movies, is really dated poorly, I, I think. But it's filmed and set in Beaufort. And so are some of those Pat Conroy adaptations, um, including a really good movie, The Great Santini. It is interesting. I think Beaufort, there's something about the trees and the water. It's open to sort of sweeping shots and has some old plantation houses and stuff. I mean, I'm assuming that's why. Maybe there's, I don't know, weird tax breaks. But yeah, there's a definitely. And I'll tell you, one of my favorite films that was filmed kind of around there. I don't think it was filmed exactly in Beaufort is a movie called Conrack, which was taken from a Pat Conroy, a novelized sort of docudrama about his time Mm -hmm. as a teacher in the, um, some of the islands off of South Carolina. The water is wide. Wasn't that the name of the novel? That's right. That's the book. Yeah. And in the movie, John Voight plays Pat Conroy, which I mean, you know, who doesn't want a seventies John Voight playing them on screen? But he goes, and it's mostly poor black families on this island, and he's idealistic and wants to teach them about Beethoven and and art and poetry, and his superiors, both black and white, want him to teach them like the basic stuff because they don't think the kids, they just want them to be sort of useful to society. It's a great movie, and it does, to me, capture some essence of South Carolina that 
a lot of movies don't ever get close to. Well, it's it's interesting. Uh, decades since the the book was written and the film was made, folks in Beaufort, black and white, still talk about how important that book and that movie was to them. And wow. until he died, Pat Conroy kept up with a number of those children that he taught on Defusky Island. Pat was an interesting interesting guy. And of course, some of his other novels were made into movies shot here. The Great Santini, you talked about, The Prince of Tides. And one of my favorite movies, because uh, the novel was written by a growing up friend of mine, Winston Groom, uh, that is Forrest Gump, uh, which you like and you don't like. Uh, it didn't make your, your list of, of great films, uh, but you also said, anytime you get a chance to watch it, you do. I mean, I love this movie. I've seen it dozens and dozens of times. When I, It came out when I was 17 or 18, and I, I watched it. Uh, I saw it a lot. We had it a VHS copy, and I would watch it late at night when I would come home after going out and stuff. And its vices and virtues are kind of right next to each other. And it, it has a lot to say, but in a way, it doesn't say much of anything. And that's, yeah. I guess, my beef with the film, ultimately, is that it is inserting itself into American culture and politics in a very uh, demonstrative and forceful way. And yet in, in doing that, it kind of lands on a, like a very soft, very, very soft liberal-esque center of the road uh, set of platitudes. And it's, it's just weird just that it makes that decision. But I, I think ultimately my beef with it, and you're going to laugh because it's the cons- conceit, but that this holy fool is like wiser than everyone. And like, he knows the right way to live somehow. Well, Winston Groom and I grew up together in, in, in Mobile. And one of his beefs was that the character in his novel is really an idiot savant. He is a genius in many ways, particularly with figures. And a film that came out before Forrest Gump began to be filmed, The Rain Man, as Winston said, that topic had already been covered by Hollywood, so they weren't going to go so much into that. So he's depicted in the film as uh, this mild-mannered person who has a 75 IQ, and that's in the film. And Winston just thought that was a little bit demeaning because he grew up, we both did, our, our fathers talked about a person in Mobile who was an idiot savant. In terms of music, he could sit down at a piano and play anything, but he had trouble walking across the street. And so, I, am I hearing it right? You don't think, Walter, that the movie did the book any real justice. And Ben, you just think the movie was trying to leave out some of the things that were hard to think about? Just mere entertainment, if I can use that word? I, I think the movie is fabulous in a lot of ways. It is entertaining. It has an epic scope. But my real beef, to get into the weeds, is some of the chapters just don't work. The jogging section is absurd and boring. The ping pong section, as exciting as it is, it, it's just sort of tacked on. What I love about it is it, it is often stealing or speaking to other films, especially the New York sequences with Gary Sinise in the wheelchair and it's it's talking to all those 70s New York movies. So I like Forrest Gump. In some ways, it's an intersection of all these different, it's like Hollywood blockbuster and the indie movie and these different genres of, there's the war film and the drug movie. And, the, and so I like it a lot. 
but it's a mess because <laughs> in a lot of reasons for a lot of reasons, but partially because they establish Forrest Gump as one way, but then some of the stuff he accomplishes, it's just not, you lose the movie when you start to think about a guy with a 75 IQ doing some of the stuff that he does. And I, I just, you know, so maybe it's a small complaint. Um, well, hey, you, you mentioned the, the ping pong in China. Well, in, in the novel, uh, he saves Chairman Mao by jumping into the river to keep him from drowning. So that, <laughs> did, that didn't make the big screen. <laughs> I think it was wise not to put that in there. <laughs> okay, let's move on. I guess, personally, my all-time favorite movie about the South is Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. I agree, basically. I mean, it's almost a perfect play made into an almost, I would say, almost a perfect film from casting to filmmaking. Um, it's funny. It's incredibly dramatic. It's got great acting with Paul Newman, Elizabeth Taylor, um, and the minor, the other characters. I don't, I don't have all their names. Burl Lives is it is in Burl it. Lives is Big Daddy. Yes, yeah. incredible. And he, he's an interesting actor because he's really good in the films he's in. But he, he wasn't in that many movies. But it's saturated with a very sexy uh, undercurrent of different passions, and but it follows one night. And Brick is the son, one of two sons, to Big Daddy, who owns a giant plantation. Big Daddy is dying, but he doesn't know it. He thinks that he has beaten, I think it's cancer, but he's actually dying. and He doesn't know it. Brick has, um, is a drunk, and like Tennessee Williams, he's a blackout drunk. He drinks to, to, so he doesn't have to feel. And he's harboring feelings for a high school, of one of his best friends in high school who died. And he and Elizabeth Taylor, who's his wife, are having um, they're having relationship problems in part because in the play, Brick is gay. In the movie, it's a little maybe a little more complicated than that. And so all these different characters and there's a storm coming. So they're all kind of stuck inside on this hot southern night. They are having to hash out and fight through all of these issues. It is a fabulous film. I agree. I was actually really waylaid by it because. I had, hadn't seen it as a kid. I had only seen um, Streetcar, which everyone watches in high school. Uh, and I think this is infinitely, I think it's so much better. And I was, yeah, I'm with you, Walter. It is a, it is a near perfect film. Is this a film that could be made today? Having no. just, just reviewed it in the last year, I don't know that it could be made. Well, part of the thing, I think like Hollywood, these filmed plays, Hollywood still tries to do them. They did um, August of Sage County. Um, David Mamet did Oleana. That was, 50, <laughs> that was 20 years ago. But I believe part of the issue is Hollywood is not good at cinematically adapting plays anymore. So that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is the ambiguity. A new director, a new interpretation would, would want to come down on some moral platitude, you know, in, in the film. And I actually like the film I think the film works. The ending was controversial, but I think it actually is, is really good. But I think Hollywood would, would not be able to handle the ambiguity anymore. The sexual ambiguity, the, the dramatic pauses, the, the cruelty. I, I don't know. I'm with you. I, I don't think that, I mean, you know what would happen? Let's be honest, Walter. They would add an element of action. There would be a fight, a, a couple of fist fights or, a, 
you know, someone trying to kill somebody. And I'm not being ironic. I mean, I think, I think would be ruined. Well, I live in a retirement community and did do a film series on Hollywood and history. And I showed, when we showed this movie, I would guess the median age of the folks there is well above 70. And that was, they said, this was the South in which we grew up. This story would be very familiar to us from the way the white characters interacted with the African-American characters, uh, the way the boss man wanted to make sure everything. He, he was in control of his world, he thought, but yet his wife was the one who really ran place. And it was fascinating, the discussion afterwards. The ambiguity of the main character was, de- was debated by folks there. But they really found the whole setting and the way that it was recreated by Hollywood to be a world that was not strange to them, but familiar. To, to me, Big Daddy is a character you see over and over in Hollywood films. Uh, it's the Southern patriarch who is domineering, has uh, larger-than-life tastes, and also wants to establish some type of dynasty, right? You see it in The Long Hot Summer, which is the adaptation of the Faulkner short stories. I'm not going to list the films. It's in tons of films. In some sense, the great Santini is a is one of these characters. They're, they often are, are mean and cruel to their children, but are, are popular with the uh, men of their generation. And so... I would say Burl Ives is the, uh, he's the, the totemic example of this. And in, you're right. In his case, what makes him fascinating is a, he's dying and doesn't know it. And is so being lied to and manipulated by every single person in his life. Right. And he appears to be the very picture of masculine health, but in fact, he's going to die any day and he's falling apart. So there's like layers of irony to cat on a hot tin roof. Uh, they give it this punch. The, the thing I would say, I mean, we, maybe we're talking too long about it, but is the movie's very funny. Tennessee Williams is very funny. I think we interpret him as it's all longing and like unspoken desires. And, but he, his plays and the film adaptations, except for Streetcar, they're all very, they're funny. They have moments of humor. And of course, an entirely different South is God's Little Acre. Uh, yeah. I, we talked about this last time I talked. The novel is not very good. The Little Abner Daisy May South. Yes, he is not good. I For another project I was working on, I read eight of his novels. Erskine Caldwell, he writes about Georgia. He writes about Southern uh, crackers, for lack of a better term. They are mean-spirited illiterates. I, in the book, I describe them as, you know, Morlocks. He, he, they're almost <laughs> vampires, right? I mean, it's, uh, they're, they're parasites. It's really, his novels are grotesque. N- not often in a fun way either. I read eight or nine of his books for another project I was working on that never materialized into anything on Southern fiction. But God's Little Acres, his best novel, and they made the best, the best film out of it. Uh, Anthony Mann directs it. It's a wonderful movie. And it follows, Robert Ryan plays the patriarch of a family. He owns a, a large swath of land, beautiful farmland. And he believes there's civil war, gold buried there. So he has spent the last 15 years or 10 years digging up his wonderful land, not growing anything, not contributing to anything, looking for this gold. And he's infected his children with the same desire. So 
they decide we're going to go try to find this albino to help find the gold through like mysticism, albino mysticism. So they go and they kidnap an albino played by Michael Landon, young Michael Landon. And meanwhile, there's all these, there's a subplot where there's a strike going on in town and one of the uh, family members played by Aldo Ray, who was a really sexy guy. I, you know, I, I've only seen him in war movies. He's, he's, he's a great, he's a good actor. He uh, is involved in the strike in town. So there's like an urban manufacturing subplot story. And um, it's got a great cast with uh, Buddy Hackett is in it. And the tone is semi-comic, semi-tragic, really a little bit noirish too, which I know it sounds like a lot going on. And Anthony Mann directs. And Anthony Mann, when he's on, is one of the great one of the great directors. And the film is fabulous. No one talks about it. I didn't even know it existed. And I, li- I like Anthony Mann. And the film captures, to me, the proximity, right, of the farm, the hamlet, the rural right up there with the urban, the factory, the bars, right? So it's sort of the, the city and the outlying area, What something that Faulkner often hits on as well. You talk about the conflict between the urban South and the rural South. And, and when books like God, God's Laker came out, if you go back and read the South Carolina newspapers of the day, they panned it. You know, this is not the South that we want the rest of the world to see. Um, they were they were they were very happy with. I wonder why Scarlet and Rhett. More recent film Deliverance has that conflict between the urban sophisticates from Atlanta, right, and the rural folk in Upper Georgia into South Carolina. It was filmed in South Carolina, but those rural folk those they could have populated God's Little Acre. Right. They fit with that. There's a whole uh, subgenre of horror films and drama, uh, dramatic films and thrillers where basically city people get a flat tire or they need help in the country in the south somewhere. And then they run across uh, these Morlocks, these vampires, these parasites. In this case, these hillbillies, these mountain hillbillies. Um, Deliverance is the best of all of these. It is an exquisite film. It's lush. it's, It's very beautiful. The script, James Dickey wrote the script from his own novel. There's ambiguity in the script, too, of like who the characters are and what they're after. Um, there's no ambiguity with the hillbillies that attack them. However, there's dueling metaphors about what the movie's about, which makes, I think that's part of why it stayed in our consciousness. It's people can't decide what the movie's about in a fun way, right? I would say two things about the movie. Exquisite film, almost a masterpiece, so compelling, and a total lie about how people in the South exist or live. I've broken down in weird places before that everyone had cell phones. I've asked for help. I've knocked on strangers' doors. No one attacked me. No one assaulted me, right? Like people were helpful. People were friendly. I would say now, because of the the Trump age that we're in, I found more hostility, weirdly, in South Carolina last time I was there than I ever did in my childhood or in my 20s when I would like drive around the South and stuff. So that movie is a problem. It's a problem felt. But 
it's so good that we we have to deal with it anyway. You know. Well, here's a question. We were talking earlier about the reception of God's Little Acre, the film, and how so many people took to the printed media of the day, newspapers, magazines, to say, you know, this is not the South. This is, you know, this is not the way we are. How much of that happened when Deliverance came out? Was it just like, oh, had big, big showings in Columbia, Dickie? would be in the audience and walk up and down the aisles. You know, he he played the sheriff in the movie. Right, yeah, I remember. And, and he, quite frankly, probably never got, got over that. But one of the ironies, of course, I think, uh, Ben, that people still wrestle with this, is in the epilogue, there is no deliverance. No. Those characters, there is no yeah. deliverance for them. They're stuck. They're going to be in this kind of stasis. This, Yeah, they're going to be unhealed. I, I don't think I think the movie because it, there's a metaphorical like the river is you know time passing or the damming up of the river which is going to erase all the evidence is technology and its its effects these the unintended consequences all of these things the movie has so much in it. Um, Bert Reynolds says at one time you know he's buff and wearing like a sleeveless shirt and he says. Uh, one day machines are going to fail. Right. So the movie has like a lot in it. Mm. And I think that helps people who might be like, wait, I, I live in the mountains, like in the middle of nowhere. I don't like attack people for no reason. So, you know, I think that there's that. And in the seventies, right. The South was like mocked routinely, Mm -hmm. routinely in pop culture in the seventies and and early eighties. The mocking of the South is, you know, it's Smokey and the Bandit. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> which, by the way, uh, uh, I'm trying to make Miss Neal a watch. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm not sure why. but I like Smokey and the Bandit. Okay. Uh, but you, you could do a whole book on Burt Reynolds films. And I, I actually I had a chapter, an outline of a chapter of just Burt Reynolds films set in the South. But I wisely decided not to do that because I didn't want to watch all I didn't want to rewatch all How could you not like Jackie Gleason's performance? Oh, I have. Let me count the ways. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing we haven't touched on is uh, black films over time. Mm. But first of all, it was very hard for African-Americans to be anything other than mammies and what have you, particularly for women. But Captain in the Sky is an all-black cast made a by a white movie. man. The movie yeah. was made by a white man. Yeah, but it's Vincent Minnelli. I mean, you know... He had such talent and uh, the movie has such great dance sequences and the songs are really good. And the cast is great. Uh, I, I, I adore this movie and I know it has some imagery that is, hasn't aged well, but I think it's a really important film for a lot of reasons. If you haven't, anyone who hasn't seen it, it's set in a, it's during segregation and it's a set in the, basically the black part of town. It's kind of a com it's a musical comedy. Little Joe is deciding between like the temptress in town and his wife. And there's like angels and devils involved in trying to get him to make this decision. And there's uh, local hoodlums and, and then there's the rural people. It's a wonderful movie, but I think popularly it's not more well-known because I think there's a tendency to dismiss all of Hollywood pre 1970 
as so racist as to be, there's no real, there's not many good roles for black people. And there's a lot of truth to that. All right. It was Eddie, it was Eddie Rochester who played little Joe. Eddie Rochester. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, but, um, I think in, in Paul Betty's, uh, sellout, which is a novel, great, great novel. Um, one, the man booker American novel in it, there's a character who, uh, and if you ever read it, anyone listening to this, you should read that. But anyway, there's a character in it who was in a Little Rascals type show, like a racist 1930s-esque Little Rascals type film series. And because he plays a stereotype, he's a black actor in the novel. He's being erased from history. Like they won't show his stuff on TV, so he's not getting any residuals anymore. And not only that, historians won't write about it. And he's being erased. And he's trying to like comedically save his legacy and no one wants to listen to him because he's part of this racist superstructure, even though he's a black actor. And so I think some of these old Hollywood films are stuck in a similar dynamic that you, you go looking for the good and sometimes it's hard to find like Carmen Jones, which is set. It was filmed in South Carolina, I believe, but it is set there all black cast Otto Preminger directed uh, Harry Belafonte stars with Dorothy Dandridge. Uh, it's a musical, maybe not as good as cabin in the sky for a lot of reasons, but it's, it's interesting. I think it's on its way to being forgotten except for like film scholars too. All right. We're, here we are in, in 2023 and I, I'm thinking about the movies over the last five years. Is there a, a quote Southern movie that you would pick? I'm debating a, a sequel to the book about don't, don't laugh, Walter about sequels. Um, <laughs> and then in, taking some of the stuff that got cut from this draft, the book would be organized a little bit differently. There'd be one through line movie for each chapter, not like these kind of larger themes. Right. But uh, I would definitely put one night in Miami would definitely be in there. Regina King's film about Malcolm X, Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali and Sam Cook spending one night in a hotel room in Miami, that would definitely be in there. I would probably revisit Moonlight because it's a, I think it's just one of the great movies and I think about it a lot. I'm sort of haunted by it. Well, I hate hate to say this. We we are getting close to time to wrap up. So, all right, Ben, your favorite grandchild, your favorite Southern movie, at least for for right now, if you had to tell Walter, Alfred, listeners, a movie that they had to see about the South. It's not my favorite movie necessarily, but it was the one that really struck me because I had never heard of it. Nothing but a man was a independent film made in the sixties, late sixties about a Southern black man who, because of his job situation, doesn't get to see his son much starts a dating relationship with a young woman and is navigating the economic oppression, the racism, and the uh, violence all around him. And he's a nice guy, but he's being hardened by the world that he lives in. And he always gets the junkie job at whatever work he has, the you know the junkie tasks at whatever job he has. And his relationship with his new relationship with this young woman, you know, and they're both really attractive actors. I'd never heard of either of them is imperiled by the cruelty of the Southern society around him. But 
I'll tell you why. I think the movie is, is so good. It's filmed in black and white. It's exquisitely filmed. It's set around Birmingham, and it, it's uh, there's scenes of, of urban life that could be out of like London in the 1940s or something, right? It's like, it's these great cityscapes right up against the country. And it's just a really compelling character study. And, you know, I watched it on YouTube. You, you, it's out there. Um, and I would say this is a film that I haven't stopped thinking about, partially because I had never heard of it. So it was like a discovery for me. And it's wonderful. All right. Well, Ben, it has been a pleasure to have you again on the journal. And I look forward to that next book. I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Gosh, the number of films that Ben Beard has cataloged, critiqued, discussed from all genres is absolutely mind-boggling. Just ask him a question that some film might have come from the 1940s. He'll bring back the cast, the location, the director, what it said or did not say about the South. But the bottom line, folks, is... For the most part, Southern movies are what other people think about the South, not what the South expresses. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Alfred Turner, and I produce the show, which is made possible by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. As always, we want to remind you that the views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio or its underwriters. New episodes of our podcast are published on the first and third Fridays of the month and are available at SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org as well as on the SCETV app, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Amazon, and Pandora. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. We'll talk again soon.